Okay, we're testing this. Testing this volume. Putting in the movie. Get the movie out. The case. This is what it sounds like when I put a DVD into the computer. Take a sip of coffee <clears throat> first thing in the morning. <coughs> this is what this is actually what it sounds like to make a show very, very last minute. Um, hey everyone, ever uh, welcome to 20th Century Popcast, a show where we try to, or normally we try to understand the present. Well, living in the past. My name is Tim Blevins, and if I sound exhausted, it's because to me uh, it's early. I've been up for a while. Um, it is Tuesday, and I'm recording the episode from for Thursday of this podcast, and that shouldn't seem like a lot, um, but it is because I got up around six today to um, to what. To, 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 to put together a last minute episode Bob and I were supposed to record last night Get back on track with the show that I think you like I hope you like, you seem to listen to um, The issue there, the problem there Was we had to cancel And, and timing wise to coordinate our schedules I don't know why I'm telling you all this we, 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 we don't have a lot of time So, similar to last week In the Dark Crystal episode a few weeks Excuse me, prior to that to make up for that, to make sure we have something to start the, uh, to have for an episode. I'm recording another audio commentary track, this time for a movie that impacted me a lot. Um, and I'll talk about it in the actual, uh, what do you call it? In the actual commentary. This is a commentary for Howard the Duck, the 1986 very first Marvel Cinematic Universe movie, although it's not connected to the cinematic universe, but it is the first Marvel character to make to the big screen. We're going to talk about that now. Next week, I think Bob will be back. Next week? We'll hope. We'll see. I'm warming up. I thought I would use this as the intro instead of scripting one. Hopefully, by the time the commentary starts, uh, I'll be a little more awake. So, if you own Howard the Duck, and you probably don't, but if you do, you're very fortunate. Here's how you can sync up this commentary, which can also be enjoyed on its own. Take your movie, stick it into your player, your computer, or download, or however it is you normally watch Howard the Duck with your many viewings of Howard the Duck. Hit play, immediately hit pause so that the, uh, the, 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 what, the chapter count and title count is at zero, zero. You're going to hear a tonal countdown. It's five it's monotones and then one higher pitch tone. On that higher pitch tone, hit play or unpause, or however it is you start the movie, and the commentary should sync right up. I'll be back after this whole film. Base? Oh, that's Earth. Yep, that's the Universal logo. Hey, everyone. Uh, welcome to another unsolicited commentary. Uh, my name is Tim Blevins, and today I'll be talking through, quite tiredly, with this voice, um, I'll be talking through Howard the Duck. Howard the Duck is a, well, it's the first Marvel comic book movie 
Um, very first one to ever hit the big screen, first character to make it there. It was also the first comic book film I ever saw on the big screen. I was uh, 10. This movie opened on August 1st, 1986. Um, and that summer, that summer was a big deal to me, if you know me, because uh, we'll get into it a little bit. I think that summer was kind of the start of my, my finding things, going to pop art on my own without guidance from others. But uh, that summer, there were two movies that were vying for the position of, I guess, favorite film of mine, uh, you know, best experience ever. And, and those two movies were the obvious one, I think. The action spectacle and epic saga that of course shaped my life if you know anything of the toys comics and cartoons I've talked about in the past uh, the summer of 1986 August actually was when I got to see the Transformers the movie animated film on the large screen um, it was me and two of my friends Pete Rival and Dave Wheaton just the three of us the first time I ever went to a movie theater without parental guidance I remember we Walked around the blocks near the Jilson Cinema, went to some store for candy. I think about my only pack ever of garbage pail kids. And we sat there in that movie and it changed my life and perspective, which is a conversation for another commentary, another episode. What what is worth mentioning here, I feel like, is that summer, while that was obviously the choice one would make for my favorite movie of all time, The Transformers, another movie that was sort of I don't know, so, so, sort of vying for that attention. The movie that I was having trouble deciding which one I liked more because this other movie was a comic masterpiece, possibly the funniest thing since Ghostbusters two years earlier. That other movie, which I also got to see in the theater, was this piece you may or may not be watching right now, Howard the Duck. It was a family night out at the movies when we saw it. It was Howard and the Heartbreaker. Sorry, Tom Petty fans, but that's the poster that's on his wall. Splash Dance, another poster. A lot of dumb parodies in this scene. Yes, Howard the Duck, a live-action movie about... Here is this anthropomorphic, cigar-smoking, triumphantly scored-by-soundtrack animatronic puppet that probably should not have been a movie that I loved. I think it's convincing effects but yeah howard the duck i was aware of it coming out well before its release i was excited for it it managed that weird pre-internet uh sensation of not revealing what he looked like before the film so i didn't actually know what howard looked like until i saw the movie itself so that that was a thrill for me i knew he was a comic book character but i don't think I don't think I quite knew much about him, but this movie prompted that change. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Just in case you are singing this up to give you a little sense of what we're looking at. Um, Howard the Duck in 1980s dollars, if this means anything, um, had a $37 million budget. Now, yeah, that's 1986 dollars. Let's translate a little bit. That 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 in today's amount, in today's economy, taking on the account would be about 78 million dollars, which sure is a lot. They're both large numbers. I mean, when you think about most superhero movies being between 100 and 200 million dollar budgets plus promotion these days, maybe it doesn't seem like a lot. But Howard the Duck is a comic book character who only had a cult following. He wasn't known to the media the way Batman or Spider-Man or, or Supergirl are known. There's some duck tits for you in a PG movie. A couple of PG movies have tits, I guess. This and anything by Disney that shows you how animals nurse. 
But uh, this was an, a very unknown property, very underground property. That's a racist duck. God, you're not seeing all this, are you? There's tons of ducks living in the city, and one was racist. But um, it was an unknown property or an underground property. So that was a lot of money to throw, not just at the character, but at the medium. Comic books were not successful films in the 80s. There was Superman in the 70s, 78, I think, 77 or 78. There was Superman 2. In 81, and after that, it took until maybe three years after this when Batman hit the screens that comic books would hit. So it was, it was risky. And even watching it now, it's poised as a giant epic. I mean, we're spiraling through the solar system right now with narration, with what are beautiful effects, asteroid fields, different stars. This is actually a very nice opening sequence of special effects that doesn't... There's a parody of the monolith from 2001 it's positing this gigantic grandiose adventure including the theme there's like this somewhat dramatic musical theme that is howard's theme playing similar to like how back to the future is this comedy that brings in an orchestra to drive it with the drums and the horns howard the duck which actually shares a couple things in common with back to the future as we'll see come out the year following is doing the same and um it worked I was hooked from the beginning that this was some sort of space epic. Not a good adaption of the comic, if you're a fan of the comic. And maybe not a good adventure if you're not a fan of ducks. Which I'm not. I don't know why anthropomorphic ducks are key. Donald Duck, Daffy Duck. People seem to love ducks. Anyways, Howard just landed on some trash. And here, I think, is why we're seeing the movie I like. The Fashions. This is a movie for me. I was in a small town. I grew up in a small little town, Lebanon, Connecticut. That's where I lived. That's where I, I, I knew. So what I knew was what I wore every day to school. Three-quarter length sleeve t-shirts with Voltron on them. Or button-down shirts buttoned up to my neck and untucked uh, past the belt. So I didn't know the new wave. I didn't know punk. I only know glimpses of what I saw on album covers. Things like Purple Rain, uh, Material Girl. So what I'm watching right now, what I was watching when I saw in the theater was, I'm sure, an abstract rendition of new wave punk culture. But it looked great to me. The colors, the fashion, the plastics, the leathers. There's a gremlin's thermos on the ground. And it was sort of this, like, we're in a nightclub or a music club, rock club. There's, there's Leah Thompson, who we'll talk about in a minute. A key reason I like this movie she's in a band but, but I'm just this really it's an odd start and it sucked me in immediately because I had fictional creatures a comic book character and my introduction to alternate fashion culture I mean this this is the movie that knew I would one day be spiking my hair knew I'd be wearing eyeliner and painting my nails knew that I'd want to find myself 80s suit jackets and 80s ties whenever I went out wanted that fashion and this movie I think was of its time I think was a realistic representation of something and it came from this film this leathered up kids version of CBGB's in the middle of Cleveland was that in Ohio that's where he is so yeah I we're watching again this is just a bizarre start to a film. But look at the hair. You can't unless you're watching the movie. But look at the teased out hair, the punk look, the 
maybe not progressive lesbian biker gang. I'm unsure if that's progressive or making light of it, but I don't know. This, this, you know, we're only nine minutes in to this. Actually, technically, we're nine minutes and 20 seconds in. And we've got Howard crashing to Earth in a spectacular punk rock fashion. A talking duck who just had a bad day. And I guess we're all of a sudden supposed to be siding with him. Anyways, here's Leah Thompson for you. Leah Thompson, who the year before had probably been a crush of mine in Back to the Future, where she played Marty's mother. Leah Thompson, who's probably been in many other works. I have some kind of wonderful comes to mind. But this, this where she, wow, that's weird. Sorry, there's a little bit of a, She's in danger. There's two punks kind of approaching her. And she said, anyways, um, I'm not making much sense here because I'm actually watching the movie while I talk. But Leah Thompson in this movie plays Beverly Switzer, who in the comics was a human. I think she was a model in the comics that Howard the Duck, the character, met and fell in love. In this movie, she's in a rock band. She's the lead singer of what basically amounts to a better live-action representation of Jem and the holograms. Jim and the Holograms is a cartoon that premiered in 1985, sort of a pop culture, pop band cartoon about two dueling pop groups, the Holograms, led by Jim and her um, magical earrings that could create holograms via synergy, and the Misfits, sort of this all-female-led punk band of rebels with multicolored hair and and i loved that show similar to this it was an introduction to the flash and fashions of pop and new wave music and so that cartoon had been on for not even a year by the time this movie premiered but i was watching it because it was unknown again i was in this small town culture and fine culture but the music we heard was on the radio so of course we knew michael jackson the images i caught were off tv so again of course i knew prince it was fascinated by when doves cry it was fascinated by the outfits of madonna in her like a virgin video but i didn't see a lot of these clothes on a day-to-day basis i didn't see the um like the mesh gloves that are cut off at the fingertips that we're seeing right here or, or all the the glistening just leather and 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 fashion and and i don't know rubber whatever it is you know 80s clothes think the bangles think the go-go's think the time think of all of those bands of that era i didn't normally see it so to see it on a cartoon like Jamba, or they see it here as i did on the big screen on family night out it was another world to me that i wanted to be a part of these were costumes, and I guess it makes sense. This is a superhero movie in the sense that he's a comic book character, and everyone's clothes but his are fantastic. They're just another look. It's just that day glow, pieced together, love and rocket sort of drawing of the 80s. Crimped hair, giant bows. <sighs> this was the fashion I wanted, and it really never reached my school, or it didn't reach it while it was happening. So this movie was a window in 86 the year this came out was sort of a window too but we're watching leah thompson interact with a puppet howard the duck who uh that's a two million dollar duck suit there um in 1986 dollars two million was put into building this white feathered 
small person or child outfit with an animatronic duck head that I'm sorry is pretty believable fairly believable but but what they're setting up here and it's strange and as a kid it was not because I guess you don't have the elevation of knowledge of bestiality and social norms but Howard is yeah an anthropomorphic duck that in the comics is a parody it's a funny thing but in this movie is a character that she <clears throat> that Leah Thompson feels sympathy for it's odd that she can sell it. I mean, this is an actress who in the her previous movie to this, Back to the Future, played a character who makes out with her son in a laughable sci-fi fashion. In this movie, she plays a wonderful band singer who is already eye-flirting with an anthropomorphic duck she just met. What's up, Leah Thompson, with your choices? With your movie choices? But it's believable she's committed the fuck out of it committed to it anyways yeah we're watching the burgeoning romance between a human and a duck and i don't know I, here's the thing my parents took us to see howard the duck took me my brother my sister we all went there to probably thinking a fun cartoonish movie you know this goofy character and we're getting what is replace howard with a human <laughs> and you have a pg-13 john hughes era movie but since it's a duck in a costume and you got this sci-fi element, I don't know what you make of it. Because I don't mean to sound prudish, but there are some jokes in this movie that flew well over my head that are posited there sexually. And, and again, this weird interspecies interaction, which maybe is progressive. I'm not sure. But this is all posited in a movie that I think my family enjoyed. Maybe because we just didn't know what to make of it. I don't know what my parents thought as they sat there with their children watching a human being meet cute a duck. But I we quoted from it. There will be lines later, which I'll repeat, that my father quotes to this day. I mean, it's a, I guess, a family comedy? 80s were weird. This is a PG movie, again, that has a lot of sexual situations with ducks and has nudity with ducks. It has intense sci-fi peril and strange sexual innuendo with ducks, which is great, I think. Here's our cartoon character drinking a beer. I mean, this predates Roger Rabbit. This comes after Fritz the Cat. And I'm not saying both of those are kid movies. Clearly, Fritz the Cat is an X-rated adult animated fantasy of 60s or 70s counterculture. But Roger Rabbit was sort of... Uh, a kids movie that took cartoons in a slightly more adult direction and I don't know this movie doesn't get credit for trying it I mean in 1986 when this came out we didn't have I I didn't I should just say for me for where I'm sitting I didn't have stuff like the Simpsons I didn't have Dr. Katz or or the car cartoons of, of the Cartoon Network Adventure Time regular show I didn't have these trippy sort of mature or adult sense cartoons i had war, you know looney tunes which i watched and loved and tom and jerry which i think were you know above kid fair when they were made but had kind of been repackaged as kids cartoons but i mean i was watching stuff that i thoroughly enjoyed like transformers gi joe he-man i mean cartoons gemini holograms that were aimed at me and aimed at my age bracket were colorful just like the comics they were based on just like the toys that supported them i mean these things were fine but they're also mainstream. 
I mean, sure, you find a toy line that not everybody has, and you collect those figures for a bit. But these were mainstream, you know, the mainstream access of a kid in fifth grade. And then, you know, up to that point, I saw the cartoons that were on the channels. I flipped around. We didn't have cable, so I wasn't stumbling across the risque of Porky's to the Revenge or whatever that's called. Not that that's animated or, or even good, but. I had access to what was at the mall and access to what was at the pharmacy comic book rack. The things that my parents could hand me or grandparents could hand me or brothers and sisters could hand me. I was in the pop culture of the minute that people had because that's what you did and that's how you fell into it. Someone bought you the t-shirt that had a GoBot on it so you're into GoBots or, or, or someone you know got you a book by Roald Dahl, so you were into the Chocolate Factory, Charlie and Chocolate Factory. This, this is how things work. And, and the year this movie came out, 1986, that's sort of the year I began of thinking of things, pop culture things, as my things, you know. That was the year that I found my own, started finding my own specific path into understanding the underground, you know. The, the underground of pop culture, the things that weren't just mainstream NBC programming. And a lot of that was comic book based, you know, comic books. They just seemed like the logical and older step for me to go after cartoons. You know, they both were drawn. Um, and it's not that I was turning my back on cartoons. I still loved and embraced them. It's just, again, we didn't have The Simpsons yet. So cartoons were just, an not just, but were still an afternoon thing. But comic books... You could go adult, you know, with comic books. You, you would see violence that was a little more dangerous. You would see things that, that, that sort of risked the at-the-time comic code. And because they were stills, you could study them and see curvature, to see artistic rendition, to see the violence, the gruesomeness, or the humor of it. And um, I don't know, something about comic books and their characters felt a little more mature. And so this summer, for example, you know, like I said, I saw the transforming car movie and I went without an adult escort and, and that was great. You know, we went to a matinee by ourselves. It was a cartoon movie to the transformers based on something I already loved, but we went by ourselves. You know, my friend's parent dropped us off. We got our candy. We wandered around and we sat in those seats and we watched the movie with no one to gauge it by. It was our day, you know, and, and, and that, that triggered something, you know, this idea that you can involve yourself with this stuff on your own. I mean, I watch cartoons by myself at home. It's not like I was sitting there with my parents, but being there in a movie theater surrounded by people I didn't know with the images coming at me and having nothing else to gauge it by felt like I was finding something. And it was Transformers. You know, I had already found it, but it kind of opened the door as did this Howard the Duck movie to sort of going to places like comic book conventions, you know, with my brother, you know, where I'd wander from one rickety table to another, trying to find deals on things as well as thumbing through piles of what these non, well, these non polybagged relics, you know, I went into comic book stores. My parents would drop my brother and I off and head to the mall and we would go in and we would talk to these comic book store owners you know, about things, about comics, about characters, kids and adults. And, you know, suddenly with their help and with my own guidance, I had this pattern of finding things like X-Men number 226, you know, or the Moon Knight issues by Bill Sankiewicz. I was just seeking things out. And so this movie, 
you know, going to a film like Howard the Duck with characters that I knew existed. I knew he was a Marvel character, but having never read before, I came out of this movie and went to comic book stores and that's what I was looking for. Howard the Duck. Like I bought the movie um, adaption. I'm sure I did that. But then because they were cheap and in back issue bins and just fine or decent condition, I, I, I got past runs of Howard the Duck from the 70s, old runs of this comic that, again, a big cult following, but not one that anyone in my circle knew. And it was, you know, I was introduced to it because of the movie, but I was able to find, uh, I'm sorry, that's a weird Tim Robbins. Tom Robbins? Tim Robbins. I was able to just find art on my own. Because Howard the Duck wasn't a traditional superhero book. It was set up as it was. You know, it had the flashy art as a cartoony character that looks like a Donald Duck. And it had cameos by Spider-Man and, and, and Magneto and other characters. So it seemed approachable as what I understood superhero comics to be. But at the heart of it, it was a form of bizarro satire. You know, taking these things, taking these bizarre cartoony devices like a humanoid duck and putting a cigar in his mouth and giving him neuroses or superhero conventions but turning it into a superhero who has to wear advertising to support his career or turning it into a look at star wars's product you know overkill you know just these ways of twisting the medium into commenting on it and not so much what we're seeing on the screen right now for howard the duck but in the comics themselves I sort of got that, I sort of began understanding that. But that's rambling about comics. Shouldn't we ramble about this film and why this film is so different and why this film, why does it exist? So Howard the Duck, again, it's a comic from the, the, the 70s by Marvel. And uh, this movie, this sci-fi movie, exists because of one of the more impactive men of my childhood deciding he wanted to make it. George Lucas, who you might know as um, the writer of Tucker, A Man in His Dreams, um, also Radio Land Murders. In the 70s, when he was working on one of his earlier indie uh, sci-fi films, he happened to be in a comic book shop with um, a couple friends. Uh, actually, what are their names? Uh with, uh, I'm actually reading the movie poster right now. William Hayek and Gloria Katz, friends of his from, from college, who together they wrote a movie called American Graffiti, um, a pretty great original in the indie movie from the 70s. But, but basically, George Lucas stumbled across a Howard the Duck comic book at a comic book store one day when they were taking a break from editing this sci-fi film about a, a farm boy who uh, takes on... A death moon, um, and he just thought it would be a great idea. It's it's weird to read those statements because I, I don't have any from George Lucas, but you'll read interviews with other people. George Lucas was enamored by Howard the Duck, and why wouldn't he be? George Lucas is a lover of fifties pulp, sci-fi pulp, pulp movies, pulp serials, and Howard the Duck coming in the seventies is sort of a thinking man's rebuff of that. It, it's all it's almost trashing it. 
But if you have an eye for that kind of thing as you're getting older, if you grew up loving the things that are being satirized and mocked, wouldn't you want to embrace that somehow? And so this cartoon duck apparently caught George Lucas's eye there at a comic book store, and he thought it would make a great movie. I mean, this is the 70s. Howard was still new. The rights weren't something he was able to come by easily. Marvel was very protective, supposedly, of its cinematic rights. And also, just the idea of Howard the Duck, he, he was created in the 70s by uh, Steve Gerber and um, well, and, and, uh, another artist named uh, Val Mayerick. Um, but they created Howard as this parody of comics, and Marvel sort of ousted them from it and they exercised their right to own it. And so when negotiations, when it finally came time for negotiations, to, God, this is boring. I'm sorry. I'm going into a financial talk on how Howard came to the big screen. Sorry, it's so early. Maybe we should watch the movie. A movie that features Tim Robbins as a goofy lab technician. And I guess a child in a duck suit. Screaming at Howard. This movie is funny. I mean, in a way, you've got this humanoid duck walking around that some people accept as fine, and other people are just put off by grotesserie, but no one is really that thrown by his presence. Well, in this scene, they are a little bit. <sighs> rambling. I am rambling right now. So if you haven't are you familiar with this movie? You're listening to this. If it's not synced up, are you even familiar with what I'm watching right now? Howard the Duck? Is that what I should be focusing on? It's nice of you to listen here. I mean, I don't know. I, originally, the movie was intended to be animated. I think George Lucas wanted to make like a film noir, hard-boiled detective movie where you have this animated duck in a world of, uh, I don't know, maybe like that Babes and Bullets Garfield special a little bit. And it probably would have worked because it's animated, so you're coming to it. I mean, I don't know how well it would have worked, but but somebody said live action. <laughs> somebody said, let's make the Howard the Duck live action. And it became this sci-fi punk rock band hybrid I mean, we're not, we're not even half an hour in yet, and our human character, the lovely Beverly Switzer, with her 80s fashions, who's in a band or neon tights, is having a public argument about a duck pitying himself, a duck who drinks and smokes, who got stuck on Earth, and is now going to find a job. That's his goal here, which means he's also going to find an employment and close that fit. And that's the plot. There's a human duck with radiation from outer space, probably, wandering around Cleveland. So is that a kid's movie? Because there's a little bit of plausibility, suspension of whatever disbelief that you have to uh, put into it to think that he could wander around without being noticed before cosplay was a big thing. But do kids want to see a duck like they are right now in the middle of a... Unemployment office? I mean, that's this film. He's a duck out of water trying to survive on Earth. And it's an Earth that I would love to have been a duck out of water in. Which, again, maybe is why I'm drawn to this. But 
there is just something about this happening in 1986 that seems valid. Look, Howard is this animal character. And I, you know, I began reading the comic shortly after I saw this movie. The back issues were cheap. You know, I was nine years old, 10 years old, something like that, probably 10. And you'd, you know, you'd, you'd go to a comic book store convention, you'd flip through the comic box, you'd pull out ratty, sometimes polybagged old copies. And at this point, the Howard issues are probably 10 years old. <clears throat> they seem like ancient artifacts to me at that time, but they're probably just about 10 or, or, or less. You know, I started reading that around the same time I started reading uh, Eastman and Laird's original Teenage Mutant and Ninja Turtles, which I started with issue nine. You know, 86, there was this sudden explosion in my life of things like this, like Howard the Duck, like the Turtles, like Cerebus the Aardvark, and like Bloom County, the comic strip that had these talking cartoony funny animals you know had what should be i don't know doodles of amphibians or furry characters telling deftly crafted satire you know look at bloom county what it's very disney-like opus you know that's instantly sellable as a stuffed animal but attacking the politics of the reagan administration or look at the turtles a goofy concept of slow-moving reptiles i can jump and flip parodying one of the bleakest stories Marvel could tell at the time. Uh, Frank Miller's run on uh, Daredevil, you know, or, or yeah, Cerebus the Aardvark, which I didn't know what to make of that. Cerebus looked like Alf. He's this Aardvark character uh, by David Sim that ran from 19, late 70s into the 2000s. It was a indie book, a black and white book, and it just told these stories that explored church and state, explored politics and sexism, explored all these concepts through the conceit of this medieval aardvark who was like Conan. I mean, all of this, I know I mentioned the name earlier, but all these things feel like a Ralph Bakshi cartoon or what I was watching, Rock and Rule. You know, it was a medium and, and, and an entertainment that I loved, colorful cartoons, colorful comic books, but it was capable of, of, of extending into deeper commentary, you know, social and psychological commentary. And I wasn't going to look for that with humans. You know, I wasn't seeking Inmar Bergman out at 10, but I was seeking out funny animal books, you know. And so that's what Howard was, you know, and Cerebus, you know, that comics and they were actually written as comic books. They were written above my standing of 10 years old. You know, I didn't grasp what they, they meant, but I, I grasped that they meant something, you know, I could figure that they had some sort of intellectual value, that there was something bigger in these comic books that were tackling adult issues, you know, bigger than the shared world I had with my friends and family. You know, there's no shortage of things to be learned and taken from Star Wars or Bugs Bunny or, or Growing Pains. But these comic books, these were an underground world of drawings that not everybody had because it was a book and I carried it places. And I sat down and opened it and flipped through it on my own and found this world of comic books that people weren't looking at over my shoulder. I didn't have to have one hand on the dial in case someone walked in and caught me watching. Oh my God, Jim and the holograms. Is that a girl's cartoon? Fortunately, I got over that thought quickly. We'll talk about that again someday. But but for now, these comic books, these merging of mediums, the underground comic books, you know, stuff that would eventually lead me to Love and Rockets, you know, by by the Hernandez Hernandez brothers, excuse me, and and a lot of these other punk comics of the '90s, Blue Mon- uh, Blue Monday, and uh, other titles, Hopeless Savages. 
I don't know. It, it, at 10, I wasn't grasping it, but I wanted to. I didn't understand what was being talked about, but I knew that something big was being talked about. There was a world I wanted access to that didn't make sense to me yet. And so that was the topics of the comics. But in terms of appearance, a city with neon fashion and this idea of trying to make it as an artist, this movie adaption of Howard gave me that in the form of 80s New Wave. Cleveland is depicted as an artistic wasteland where people are just in clubs, dressed really well with no money, drinking cheap beer, smoking cigarettes, teasing their hair, and just ah, looking like some of the greatest Lena Lovich or Nina Hagen album covers you ever saw. And our central human character, Beverly Switzer, is a struggling rock musician trying to make it. She plays at night and probably sleeps during the day. I don't know if she has a day job in this movie. But that was appealing to me. She's on stage right now singing a love ballad to a room of people who could care less with a band. And the idea is that she wrote these songs. And she's performing these songs in a world that exists for these songs. A world that Howard can walk around freely because he's an outsider. This bizarro outcast. So nobody cares that he's there. I think that was a persona through Beverly, Leah Thompson's character, in an environment of Cleveland that I really wanted. And I would find a version of it years later. I didn't have it growing up. So here they go. They're going to sing a faster song. What I'm talking about right now is that Leah Thompson's in this rock band with Holly Robinson Pete, I believe, on, key, on the guitar. There's a guitar player. There's a drummer. Basically, it's live-action Gem and the Holograms, better than the one that they tried to or did make and released a couple years ago. This is some of the best parts of the movie. Look at the clothes, if you can. Look at the jackets, the sunglasses, and then just listen to that band. I would have watched this movie without Howard. They're just such an awesome band of fashion and attitude, you know, and this idea as a kid that I would see that, and I got this from the Gem cartoon as well, that this is how these people survived in a life of rock or punk, new wave, whatever, these are all terms, but in a life of music. I didn't play an instrument. You know, I didn't really even air guitar. I did air stand-up as a kid, but I... So that might be why I was connecting here, because it wasn't a skill I had to learn. It wasn't so much that they were playing these instruments. It was what they were doing for their art. This band that had to make it on the basis of their skills. And even then, I think I realized that music was this weird... I don't know if I realized, but I could definitely pick up on the fact that music had this strange male dominance... Most of the songs I heard on the radio, not most, but a lot of them were male-fronted bands. So to have a female band that rocked like this, that rocked like Gem and the Holograms, that was an important introduction for me at 10. Like I was saying before, the first few times I watched the cartoon Gem on TV, I watched it with a hand on the dial so I could change the channel if somebody walked in. Because there was this feeling that this is a girl's cartoon. You're not supposed to watch girls' cartoons, are you? But because I could relate to these characters, because I liked their pursuit, and because I saw myself in their clothes, like really wanted to wear what they were wearing, I quickly was able to dissipate this strange gender fear and could just watch the programs to watch them. 
My sister had gem dolls. I played with those. I started allowing myself to not, not allowing, but like this weird self-consciousness that comes up as a boy with other boys, you know, calling you a girl for stuff. It was nice to break that habit. You know, it was nice to start breaking that. I'm not saying it made sense immediately, but the gender roles, you know, in the 1980s, more so than today, gender roles were still there for kids. You liked boy toys, you liked boy bands, you know, whatever it was. I was happy to sort of start stretching out of that in 86. And it's because I could, I could find these things on my own. Nobody was handing me the Cherry Bombs, which is the band that Leah Thompson's Barely Switzer is handing, is fronting. It was just in the movie. And Gem and the Holograms, it was a medium I understood, a cartoon. And then it was characters I hadn't seen before, so I could embrace it. So something like this, something like this, a freak, a freakish movie, a cult movie. Howard the Duck is probably the first, this or Buckaroo Banzai, probably this, is the first cult movie that I saw, you know, aware of. Not aware of, but saw and stuck with as it's kind of gone through its gestation of being hated, being loathed, being ridiculed and now maybe being this thing that gets shown every now and then gets gets it gets screened at art houses have i talked at all about the movie or am i just going to talk about gem and the holograms this whole time i hope you're watching this just to see the clothes and fashion look at all the red look at the leather look at the the bracelets this is such a great looking band and look at the fact that they're not bothered by howard's presence it's kind of hilarious, right? I think so. They're all okay with him in this world, and that's the world I wanted to live in. It's the world I write, or eventually would go on to write. Bizarre situations that kind of circle around the artsy people who can take it. Howard has a weird, <laughs> disaffected human voice, and he and Beverly are talking the way friends talk. We're supposed to find Howard charming. And it's not because of this animatronic puppet, which, again, might look lifeless. If It's an impressive piece of special effects engineering. It's not, it's not crap. Originally, I guess they wanted to do a computer-generated Howard. That was the original concept from what I was reading in an interview, which is odd. In 1986, could they do that? I mean, what was out there for computer effects? I think there was something in the young Sherlock Holmes movies but for the most part I, I don't know how they would have even tried it but they went this route when they decided live action with this animatronic puppet and I don't know I am it's I'm watching it now and I'm convinced I'm convinced that it exists you know it's a precursor to those Ninja Turtle costumes from the Ninja Turtle movie the way animatronics and, and people in the suit work but similar to the cartoons I watched at the time, I think the big selling point and what makes Howard work is the voice work. You know, when I think of Transformers, when I think of G.I. Joe and Gem, I, I think of the characters I love. Part of it's their visual illustration, but a lot of it is the voice work. And Howard, this duck character of Howard, is voiced by an actor named Chip Zien, which... I'll be honest, I don't know from many other things except for, and I only recently found out this was him, but are you familiar with William Finn, the the uh, musical writer, author of musicals? He wrote a musical called In Trousers. 
um, from 1979, I think. If you do, if you do, if you know William Finn's In Trousers musical, the great musical, then you would also know the voice of Chip Zien, um, who actually sings a line in the musical about laying a golden egg. Um, I first heard uh, In Trousers at the end of the 90s, but he's got a great voice. It's very, I don't know, metropolitan, unaffected voice. And it's great in the musical, and it's great for establishing Howard's voice here. It's it's this, I don't know, it sounds like somebody's best friend at a club that you would see with slick hair always passing judgment on people with a cocktail in his hand, but they put it in the beak of this character. Um, Rob Paulson also auditioned for the ro- role. Um, Rob Paulson, you might know, a year later from voicing Raphael on the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I think he's one of the Animaniacs. Yeah, his, his voice is, you, you'd know it if you heard it, if you watch cartoons. And I could hear that voice coming out of Howard, this sort of sarcastic, tinged voice. It wouldn't be the same character. I mean, all the wise ass remarks would still land, but. I don't know. There is a weird furry romance, well, feathered romance, between the voice in the Howard the Duck costume and Leah Thompson that wouldn't have played the same. Here she is watching Howard play a keyboard, and I get that she's entertained by his skill, but she's actually, we're meant to think, becoming attracted to him. And that's, that wasn't odd to me as a kid. Look at that. That's a very revealing outfit for Leah Thompson to be acting in a room full of puppeteers. But she lives in this loft apartment, and she's just bringing this friend into her life, and they're trying to pursue her rock career. I mean, this was appealing to me. Should it be worrisome? Should it be odd? that uh, this is a movie that kind of sparks a multi-species relationship? Or is that progressive thinking? Should that even be an issue? I, I, I don't know if this was weird for my parents to sit with us in. Beverly Switzer just invited Howard into bed to watch David Letterman. This movie was pretty aware of its underground positioning, of its demographic, I would think. I'm embarrassed that I can really relate. It's not embarrassed. I just find it odd that I can relate to this storyline. Again, there's a duck costume flirting with a very willing and committed Leah Thompson who's gazing into these animatronic eyes. And again, as a kid, maybe I was projecting myself in this scene onto Howard, but no. I do look at her as the hero of this movie. It's not called Beverly, but she is my favorite part of the film. But yeah, this is a very seductive love scene between a human actor and an animatronic duck puppet in a kid's PG movie. And I don't think it struck me as weird. If it had, it would have been not that she was with a duck, but that I was watching any form of romantic interaction with my parents in the room. But I don't, his feathers are standing up like a boner, that's weird. But I don't think it bothered me. 
I'm not sure. Again, maybe it's this entrance in, through cartoons. Maybe it's this entrance as a kid at 10 who wasn't sexually alive, who wasn't charged for relationships. Maybe I didn't see the weirdness in this because any sort of coupling of people was more just about the idea of a dating relationship, not the strange... I mean, because what? He... Ducks have hook penises, right? They hook. So they're there kissing. She just kissed the puppet. And then here's this child molester. Jeffrey Jones just walked in the room. Oh, lock up your children. Jeffrey Jones is in the room. <sighs> so Jeffrey Jones, who is an actor you would know as the principal in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And many uh, the husband in Beetlejuice. And the mugshot, due to an early 2000s sexual uh, deviant behavior case involving him and photography of young children. God, it's so unfortunate. Not unfortunate. It's unfortunate for the people who suffered, but it can really ruin a movie or distract from a movie when someone has been so publicly displayed as a predator and they show up in the film. I mean, I guess we could talk about that or I can try to talk about the film I've barely talked about or, uh, you know, more about a duck's penis shape. So the sci-fi element of the movie is kicking back in here. Not that it hasn't this whole time with this animatronic duck. But at the beginning of the movie, uh, Howard got sucked from his world, duck world, into ours through some weird interdimensional uh, pipe or tube stretching across the heavens. That's a lovable character. And so now they're explaining his origin with this videotape that there is some sort of science company using this experimental telescope that shot into space and somehow hit Howard's world and created a gateway and sucked him to Earth. So we have this strange, bigger than the movie plot going on. Because he's talking about how the satellite or the, the telescope, the science device, was suddenly controlled by an exterior force that re-aimed the beam and that brought Howard to our world. So what's odd is I would have totally watched this movie without this need for him to get home. I was enjoying it as a band that happens to have a duck as a manager. So this feels tacked back in. We don't get, I mean, it's set up. It's set up because of different characters and how it brought the plot in and the fact that this is how he arrived on Earth. But... There are two movies going on. This is the more straightforward 80s sci-fi movie, which still has some pretty funny jokes, but it is kind of a straightforward... Look at that. She's got uh, pop art on the walls. Oh, Lichtenstein. Right? Is that the right name? Probably can't see it now because Tim Robbins' head is in the way. But I think there's a Lichtenstein painting. Is that the guy who did the comic strips with uh, the, the panels that look like comic book panels? Is that the right artist's name? She has one hanging in her studio apartment. But, you know, as a kid, I don't think I was bored by this plot, but I think I definitely felt a little, it's a, it is a little jarring. What happened to the sweet artistic pursuit of a girl and her duck? Now it's all about getting him back home, which, okay, the, 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 the vying for home versus new home is a common cinematic trope. But not the one that I took, not the takeaway from this movie for me as a kid. She's a great character. Leah Thompson's Beverly Switzer is a pretty prominent feminist character in a sea of 80s movies that weren't. You had Ripley in Aliens. You had Susan's, both Susan's, and Desperately Seeking Susan. 
you had the twins on Double Trouble. But um, I don't know. I, I know she gets victimized a little bit later, but she's a pretty proactive, smart-thinking, funny character that is selling the shit out of this talking duck costume. I know there's a lot of things in this movie that are supposed to be like, it's a duck's version of this, a human's version of that, but Howard molted in her bed. There's a couple of loose feathers he calls souvenirs. What is the human equivalent to that? Would that be like, I found a couple pubic hairs in my coffee? Oh, just a little souvenir. I'm unsure. So here's the sweet love theme to Howard the Duck. Isn't that strange? There's like this very serious, earnest score to this movie, including a love theme. As playing over this scene of a crying Leah Thompson and an animatronic duck head on a stick bobbing in the back of a truck. Excuse me as I hold back the sniffles here. I related to this. Star-crossed love. I got it as a kid. And I get it. Movies can do this when they introduce you to two characters so disparate from two different worlds that they meet. Of course they're going to connect. And that makes sense as a kid. That teaches you how to connect. And in this movie, one happens to be a duck. A comic book duck. So we're almost an hour into the movie, and I guess this is the plot now. Forget that she was in a band. She's going to Dietechnics, which is almost Dianetics. The end of the building is Dietechnics. That's a nice effect. There's a nice little matte painting of some piece of science fiction equipment. But yeah, again, the movie just takes a turn into being hard sci-fi, which is a weird thing to say in a movie where your central character is a duck, but I do think there are just two different films going on here, and the first half is a beautifully powerful, satirical look at New Wave culture, about the fashion of New Wave, the despair, that's some bad special makeup, apparently like I got burnt by Cosmic Rays, or leaned onto an Elio's pizza, or both. But yeah, now it's this weird sci-fi comedy, and it is going to be funny. I mean, it's still bizarre, but it's just, you got this, now the sweeping score is coming back in. It's like Close Encounters of the Third Kind strings. There's all this fire and explosions. Something's gone horribly wrong. And the movie becomes something about Earth being in peril, whereas before it was such a more simpler story, and that's... I'm sure as a kid I remembered the finale. I'm sure in the theater I was enjoying all of this action. But the reason I could keep watching the movie was the resonation of, ah, there's Steve, Steve or David Pamer. Forget which Pamer that is, but he's got a little walk on here. He's actually always very enjoyed. You'd know him if you saw him. He's usually a nerdy science type. Here he plays a uh, nerdy science type who asks, upon seeing Howard, for the first time, the only walking duck on earth, asks, oh, is that it? Meaning, is that the walking duck you're talking about, or was there a different walking duck? The walking duck. I wouldn't watch that show either. I don't like zombies. Do you like ducks? That's an 80s hairstyle on men. A big 80s hairstyle on men.
again, it's, it's, I don't know. It, it's, 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 this is the first comic book, not the first, but you just, it's a comic book movie where you can see the formula already beginning for Marvel. Strong original origin stories with the necessary battle at the end. I mean, this is a movie that was finding an interesting route on telling a Howard story and then has the confidence to do that, has your interest, and then needs to build into a recognizable climax. Even in 1986, that's what the sci-fi mashup here is about. So I'm going to try to strip down Howard. Again, I guess it has to be a duck. Because if you turn into a real person here, this is very disturbing. I guess they wouldn't be looking for a zipper on a real person. But again, this is kids. You got a cute Donald Duck looking Bill saying pervert twice or once. I heard it, it echoed. It was that big. He's wearing boxer shorts. So is, and since he, instead of uh, wings, his wings have evolved feathers. So is he wearing boxer shorts because his groin has evolved? <laughs> the very noticeable hook penis that ducks have? I'm not asking too much about his anatomy. It's just earlier in the movie we saw a duck on his world with tits, with actual boobs. It's duck handling, not man handling. comical you're not seeing it but Leah Thompson is helping Howard escape with some dramatic music to add tension and then we begin with the puns bookum ducko the second half of this movie the lighter faster moving frivolous sci-fi part does do well with puns there's a fair amount of duck puns in this movie there's two they missed, but other than that, they're all here. So Howard's on the run. So they're hunting Howard with all intention of killing Howard. And he and Beverly are going to be on the run. Ah. It's not that I'm bored. It's just I have less to say about standard sci-fi movies. I, I really want to go back to the start of this film. This world this movie created. Where you can walk around with an alien and no one cares. Where, where you're just dressing up as the culture... You know, I would have loved... I had this environment for a while. It was in coffee shops, not Cleveland. But it was the clothes I wanted to wear. You know, nothing would phase me. Everyone kind of moved around as these animate characters. And the bizarreness of their behaviors was still part of their existence. We didn't have this. Um, this Jeffrey Jones, ugh, you pervert. His character. We didn't have a Thog to Never Nether. Was it Thog to Nether Spawn over Master of Sominus, which is the suddenly introduced villain in this movie? So this device that brought Howard to Earth brought this other creature to Earth, who is now 
infecting pervert Jeffrey Jones's body. Um, Thogged Another Spawn is an actual comic book character, sort of. Um, he was a villain in Man Thing, a comic that was created, I think, to balance Swamp Thing, created by Steve Gerber, who also created Howard. Um, yeah, and he's sort of this demonic character. Then they used the name, I think, or they used the idea. I don't think they actually used the name in the movie. He doesn't call himself Thog, but he does call him an overlord of Sominus, I think, which is similar. So I'm just, I'm only commenting because it's like, at least they're getting some of the comic book minutiae into the movie. This is, you know, I'm so used to now the comic book movies representing the book. You know, it's like, here are the names you recognize. You know, the first Iron Man movie, maybe it wasn't entirely tight with the Marvel continuity the way it is now, but there were name drops to things. I think Wakanda shows up on a map. I think Vibranium is mentioned. You you get hints of the bigger world of the comic book. While they're horrible, horrible movies, the Transformer live-action movies, I keep going back to them because I want to be jazzed and see those little moments where they mention the Quintessons, where they mention the Matrix of Leadership, where somebody's named Bruticus. You know, you get the little references from the source material, and 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 for the most part, <laughs> this Howard the Duck movie doesn't. A concept I think would rely entirely on the source material. I'm sorry, this movie hates sex changes. That was an unfortunate joke. Oh, 80s. As open-minded as I wish you were, as many icons that came out of it, you still had closed-minded views to lives that weren't the norm. But uh, no, you would think the source material of Howard, him being this wise acre duck in making fun of the medium he's in, would be necessary to translate him to the big screen, but it's not. It's a unique enough adventure where you could slot in a different animal character and you wouldn't it wouldn't be ripping anything off really <laughs> wouldn't make much of a difference I don't know good effects nice blue screen while you're driving Howard but not not the greatest sequence I'm just talking through it god this part of the movie is difficult it's difficult to talk during an action scene of a movie where I'm lost now. This doesn't bode well for you, the listener. Are you going to stick it out with me? Do you think you'll stick it out with me? What do we got left? I think we maybe have, surprisingly, I think we have almost an hour left. How is that possible? How is this almost a two-hour movie? Is that right? Checking the box here. It is. This is almost an two-hour film, which means this is almost a two-hour podcast, which means I'm almost owing all of you an apology. You can pause it, right, if you need to. So here is a moment of satire. They just wound up at a Cajun sushi restaurant. Uh, Two words, I didn't know what they meant at 10. I didn't know what Cajun food was. I didn't know what sushi was. But this scene, the scene is so bizarre this is what the tone in the movie i feel like should have been it's this weird sort of comment on trends there's some great acting in it a nighttime diner which i feel bad about uh but it's just a weird look at pop culture it's a bizarro set with this bizarro character who's going to come to the table in a minute as a waitress and just jokes More than the movie should have been this. This is actually an amazingly put together sequence with the colors 
and it gets some plot across. This is, I'm not saying teach Howard the Duck in your, oh, she's adorable. I'm not saying teach um, Howard the Duck in your screenwriting class, but to have to move along the plot a little right now in your Bizarro movie, they're creating a funny enough scene that still allows for the puns, that still allows for the jokes, and then allows for just every actor to kind of give it their all. This is a good good encapsulation of a scene. Here comes some cannibalism, maybe, because the diner, and he's a duck. Is it cannibalistic for a duck to eat chicken, though? Chicken eggs? Because we can eat, I don't know, what's the comparable to humans? I guess it would be monkey, and I'm not saying to eat monkey. They do in Temple of Doom. They're not cannibals. So I guess it's just more shocking to him. Because when Howard gets a plate of eggs, it'd be like getting a plate of... Would it be like getting a, a plate of a fetus or just a plate of semen? Those are very different things. God, this is going to be rough, people. Stay with me, maybe. We're an hour in. We have less than 50 minutes to go. Ah, oh, so tired. So, so tired. One hour, one minute, and 20 seconds. <sighs> this is why you have a co-host, people. This is why when you do a podcast, you go back and forth. This is why I miss Bob. Where are you, Bob? Sometimes I guess I can talk. You know, with L.A. Story, with The Dark Crystal, I was able to talk the whole time, but I'm having some trouble keeping things going with this movie that does mean something to me. Maybe not the size of what I thought it did. No, that this movie, ugh, what I'm trying to say, I'm losing it, people. It's early in the morning and I'm here and I have to work today and I'm here wearing a bathrobe and some strange pirate-themed pajama pants that I don't know where they came from sipping my third cup out of the second mug of the day, this time of tea because we're out of coffee. Using words that are strung together just to fit the running time of a movie that might be 20 more minutes than it need to be in length. Because really, no one was asking for a Howard the Duck movie, so no one was asking for a nearly two-hour Howard the Duck movie. I loved it. In the theater, the length of movies is fine. But sometimes at home, you want something shorter Something to pause, something to even come back to. <sighs> Seriously, it's nice of you to listen. You're listening right now, and I really appreciate that. But is this what you want from the show, the nature of the show, the, the gist of 20th century podcast? It's, maybe it would be a worthwhile show to talk through an entire movie, because normally it's a jumping off point. But just today... Today I'm realizing that I can't I can't move through things by myself as an artist. I've always made that fucking mistake. The only times I've been successful with things, the only times that I've really followed through and gotten things together is when I am working with someone else. You know? Beverly on her own, Howard on her own in this movie. Howard's lost. He can't survive Cleveland walking around by himself. But team him up with uh, Marty McFly's mom there. And suddenly can save the whole world. Is that is that that's a weird attachment, but it's true. This podcast 
is something I probably, when I first thought of it, thought, you know, I can do this by myself. I'll just rotate in hosts, you know? And it's like any art that I do. I always think I can do this myself. But you need an equally invested, equally talented person to finish things. The movie was like that. My failure at a stand-up career was because of that. And, and the show... This podcast requires the voice and presence and insights of Bob to be fascinating. I don't know why it took me so long to learn that. I mean, the idea of discovering art sometimes on your own, maybe that blinds the concept of what art is. Like, I don't know if I was a loner to begin with, but I think I always thought that's how you make this stuff. So when I was finding these issues of Howard the Duck in the bins and reading them, I wasn't thinking like multiple people worked on this. I knew Steve Gerber's name as the creator of Howard, so I thought of it as Howard's. And I read it, and then when I started making my own comics that were ripping off Ninja Turtles, that were ripping off Howard the Duck, you know, just stapled pieces of paper with lines drawn by a ruler and and, then badly written Bic pens. I felt like I was supposed to do those by myself. Not uh, not in a group, but that's not how you get things done creatively. That's the weird world of, or that's not how I get things done. You know, I'm fascinated by the idea of indie art and underground art. You know, I like it better than bigger studio works. You know, I like the idea of being in a dark little theater and seeing a movie that someone put together on a shoestring budget. But I like the romantic idea that it's one person's vision. But I don't think I can make art that way. I need the collaboration. I need to work with someone. I need that balance of personas because my persona alone doesn't lend itself to an hour and 58 minutes of talking as we're finding out here during Howard the Duck. Uh, Maybe if I played some... uh, home movies from childhood then I would talk more about this movie alternate the visual with the topic I think this is where she calls him her boyfriend yep Leah Thompson just shouted that Howard's his boyfriend as an attempt to save his life and then this angry mob of a restaurant this is a little weird this angry mob of a restaurant is ready to slaughter this talking duck for breakfast a duck that this woman admitted to uh, to loving. A duck that some of them must think they're strapping him to the cutting table. They get, they're going to make a meal out of him. Some of these people involved must think that they're going to cut through and hit a kid in a costume, right? They're salting him. They're putting celery in his mouth. This is strange. All these characters are willing to kill him. Weird. That's funny. That's a funny exchange. This goes on for a while, this scene. I remember when it started saying, I thought it was great. And it's probably entertaining, but when you're talking during it, wanting to get to a point of interest, I'm not there. I like that effect, that shimmering light effect around Jeffrey Jones's body. It's not like Mr. Boogity. Did you ever see that movie? That Disney movie? It's on TV. I wrote about that a couple weeks ago. It's this weird lightning effect. It's like silhouette around the body. It's spectral. This example, it's sci-fi-ish. But sometimes it's ghosts. Nice purple lighting. 
don't know why they don't do this effect more. I'm hoping they do it in Thor Ragnarok. He must have ate the chili. I'm sure I laughed at that joke. Such a weird performance. Such a weird film. Do you get mad uh, mobs like this in modern movies? Human beings willing to kill? That effect looks a little strange. I mean, they were, gonna, they were running at this guy with a hatchet a second ago. I'm realizing now this part of the commentary, if it works at all, requires a visual. Because you have no idea what I'm talking about if you've never seen this movie. Well, I got news for you, listeners. It's going to stay that way. With 40 minutes to fucking go. <sighs> Wouldn't it be nice to have someone else in the room? All right. Well, what can I do while this is playing? What else? I had some notes. Did I get through all my notes? Because we got a while to go. <laughs> oh. oh, Howard. Oh, 80s. I guess when you're 10, this is what you assume a relationship is. You and your female friend fighting to save Earth. I'm not convinced we're going to make it to the end. Oh, God episode. Are you listening to a breakdown, a meltdown? Are you listening to the only plausible reaction to sitting and watching Howard the Duck this early in the morning? It's not a bad movie. It doesn't deserve the hatred that people say for it. See, in um, the 80s, shortly after this came out, Howard the Duck, and through the 90s, was sort of the go-to movie for a bomb for something that did poorly. I remember in 1990 when Entertainment Weekly was maybe 29 issues into its existence. It was still a new magazine coming out every week, so not even a year old. I got a subscription to it. The very first issue had a picture of a Beatles ticket from the 60s and it was about music or something. But the second issue, the Thanksgiving issue, had a little picture of Howard the Duck on the cover and had a giant font saying the greatest turkeys of all time. And it was, it was a list of maybe the 50 worst you know, movie flops, turkeys as they call them. And Howard the Duck was the go-to for that for a long time. Now there are movies that have made less money. There are movies that are less competent. I mean, this is a special effect spectacular. People went to see it. There are actors of merit. For the longest time, this was when you wanted to make a simple joke of a movie. Instead of saying Ishtar, or instead of saying Cleopatra, you would say Howard the Duck. I think eventually it was superseded by the Waterworld, and shortly after that, the Postman. And I guess these days it's John Carter of Mars as being one of the biggest flops of all time. But yeah, this this movie was used as an example of the worst movie and maybe that's why we didn't get a lot of comic book movies I mean Batman was huge but that took three more years after this doesn't Hollywood normally recycle quickly three years in the process of production is a long time but what is the climate 
I mean, is it that comic book movies required a budget that wasn't achievable back then? I mean, Superman did well. And it's not like too many comic book movies came out and failed. There weren't many. Nobody was trying to replicate Superman. Because again, Superman came out in 78, big deal. 81 to sequel, big deal. And then 3 and 4, less so. But you would think that we would have seen more freaking superhero movies in the 80s. Was it the costuming? You couldn't do a believable character with a mask over their face, which is why we didn't get Spider-Man. Or was it just the budget that it would take to make Thor work? I don't know. And even into the 90s, we got underground comics, but you didn't get outside of Batman. You weren't getting major characters until we hit the X-Men in the 21st century. 20th century, where were your live-action comic spectacles? Star Wars was capable of things. Star Trek was capable of things. Blade Runner, they all had effects. Jurassic Park, all of these things. Why is Howard Duck, the duck and Blade <laughs> the only two Marvel movies to hit in the 20th century? Blade is a vampire movie, it did very well, but Howard, that's gross, by the way. That's what it looks like to give H.R. Giger a blowjob, a bleak job. Um. A xeno, what's a pun with xenomorph and fellatio, fellatiomorph? I'll have to think about that. I guess start this commentary over again. No, I don't, but yeah, I don't know. And yet this movie did do what I think modern comic movies don't. I mean, I think with the glut of Iron Man, I say glut, I enjoy them. People are loving the Iron Man movies, the Guardians movies, the new Spider-Man, all of these movies. People love them. I don't know if it brings people to comic books. I think the Marvel movies are multi... I mean, one of the reasons I chose Howard the Duck is this week, uh, the Marvel movies in total grossed over, you know, past $5 billion in grosses, in theatrical grosses of, of money made off of this interconnected universe of, what, 17 Marvel movies? That's a shit ton of cash. You know what's struggling while all that money's being made? The comic book industry. The Marvel comic industry is, is spiraling, continues to spiral, loses, doesn't gain readers. I don't know if it's losing readers, but it doesn't gain new readers. People aren't going to the theater seeing X-Men Apocalypse then seeking out prior appearances of Apocalypse. People aren't suddenly going into their pharmacy and grabbing Spider-Man issues because of Spider-Man Homecoming. The, the, the comic book movies now are their own entity, and that's how people know the character. It's not funneling you back into the source material, which I think movies often do. I mean, everybody, when Watchmen came out, it did. Everybody had the fucking Watchmen graphic novel the year before that movie came out. And Lord of the Rings, everybody was making sure to find the oldest affordable cover of that series so it looked like they had it before the movie was out when that came out I, what I'm saying I guess is the, the, the movies now don't funnel people to comics but Howard did Howard the Duck in the theater introduced me to the comics to underground comics because I was curious his presence on the screen sparked a curiosity what was this character the character of Howard in the comics is not this he is not this Chip Zien voiced animatronic puppet. It's a very different adult-based political comic book that I did not understand. 
but I was directed to it because of something like this. You know, this movie takes the tropes I know. As we'll see later, there's special effects that resemble Return of the Jedi special effects. There's comedy in one-liners, which resembles Ghostbusters. And there's the fashions that resemble Gem and the Holograms, the cartoon I was already loving. So there's enough in this movie that felt familiar that when asking myself, well, what is it outside of those, as a 10-year-old, to be like, well, so what is this? Because even though... Leah Thompson would be a great gem of Gem and the Holograms. I know she's not, you know, and even though the humor here is, is as funny to me as Ghostbusters was, it's not Ghostbusters. So when having to figure out what is this thing and who is this character, I sought out the comic books. So that's a good introduction, right? I mean, I think Steve Gerber the, and the, one of the, you know, the co-creator of the character hated this movie society seems to hate this movie but it brought me into a world that i may not have found otherwise who knows how maybe i would have found the ninja turtles through the cartoon and not through the comics if it wasn't for howard the duck maybe i never would have read an issue of cerebus maybe i wouldn't have been so haunted by the images of the hernandez brothers love and rockets hanging in the comic book store wondering what those clothes and what those fashions look like maybe i wouldn't be in these comic book stores if it wasn't for this movie which means my pop cultural uh, heritage, my, my pop culture and just ancestry would have followed a very different path. This was the perfect movie for 10-year-old me because, again, it was saying that things can be different. This medium can be different. This is an adventure movie about a duck from a comic book about a duck in a world not populated by other ducks something to that and it does have a pretty amazing soundtrack and a pretty great teaser poster that picture of the egg with his beak popping out with a cigar that poster was everywhere in the 80s they were really trying to promote this fucking film which again did not do well it probably only played for a couple weeks in the theater we were fortunate enough to see it again we saw it on a saturday evening as a family and i wanted the merchandise there's very little merchandise this movie there were trading cards which I had, there was the comic book adaption, which I had, and there was a movie novelization, which I walked around a comic book store with and nearly purchased, but wound up getting an Arthur Adams X-Men poster instead, I think. There wasn't much else. You know, there were no action figures. There were no plush toys. There was no McDonald's cup. And maybe that's why I sought out the comics, that collectible need to somehow be hitched in with the film to have some ownership of for of the film that maybe the comic was what I was seeking out there I'm unsure but it might make sense I'm glad it happened there's um I think the authors of these kind of comics the Ninja Turtles Howard and Cerebus they're playing off their childhoods they're they're, they're drawing off of Images that they know they gravitated for and they're using it as a filter to understand the parts that aren't childish anymore. The frightening angles of the political world, the terrifying aspects of living on your own, the risk of entering a relationship. All those things are foreign concepts to us in life growing up. So to have the filter of these cartoon characters as being a way to experience it or express it in the case of the authors and writers of these characters 
that make sense? This lengthy sequence doesn't. An exciting biplane scene with a Howard puppet flying it. It was probably very exciting to film, but it's very dull to watch. How is there still half an hour? How is there still half an hour of this? I know the plot. I know what's left to happen. If you're following along, we are one hour and 20 minutes in to this movie, which means we have, yep, 30 minutes to go. Imagine if the whole movie was just this air flight chase. And imagine if you had never seen the movie, we were just listening to a man talk about an air flight chase and repeatedly refer to it as air flight chase and just wonder why does this episode exist? It might feel a little bit like this episode. That's right, it's in Ohio. I keep forgetting. It's one of the only movies I've ever seen set in Ohio. One of the only programs. Probably. Well, Drew Carey was in Ohio, right? Cleveland. He enjoys Cleveland. Do people take Tim Robbins seriously now? Because they sure did during this movie. They sure took him seriously. I met Tom Robbins once. The author... It's weird. I, I, was, I saw him at a book signing, so I didn't even really meet him, but I'll call it that just to be in celebrityness. Um, Tom Robbins was an author whose name I knew because of uh, even Cowgirls Get the Blues, but I never read it. But from what I heard, he seemed like the kind of author I'd like, this alternative writer. So I went to see him read. I didn't read books. I still don't. I read comic books. If I was in the novels, I bet it would have been a big Tom Robbins fan because of that. I bet that would have been the Howard the Duck of the literary world, seeing this man read from his book and talk and then suddenly be like, I want to be like that book and seeking that book out. It's just a triumphant score. This was a soundtrack I searched for years to find. I remember when I was very young, a year or two after this movie came out, seeing it on record. But I didn't have a record player. I wanted it on cassette. I wanted the Howard the Duck soundtrack on cassette and didn't have it. Um, years and years later, the first time I ever went on to uh, Amazon or eBay, someone had a copy of Howard, a burnt copy of it on CD, which I remember bidding on and really wanted for some reason. So here comes one of the two deaths in the movie, and the only human death. I think as a kid, this scared me. I felt very bad for this character who does die. He gets disintegrated by the Dark Overlord. I think it's to express the danger he possesses. I think he gets disintegrated. We don't actually see now that I think about it. But I think it's to pose the threat of what he does later in the film. And that scared me as a kid. I was scared of things being disintegrated. I remember this effect from the commercials. The commercials for this were very private. They would never do this now, sadly, but they kept the look of Howard's secret. Maybe people weren't clamoring to see, and that's why, but the commercials did not feature the puppet head-on. So they had to use other shots. So they used, I remember they used special effects shots of Jeffrey Jones, and they used a lot of people's reactions, saying, like, it's a duck. And I think long distance shots of this flight thing, but you never saw his face. And as a kid, that was very exciting. As someone who was involved with the promotion, it was probably just because they were embarrassed, embarrassed by the puppets. Because if you remember a Garbage Pail Kids movie, they also don't show the puppets in that. Uh, 
can't believe how long this biplane sequence goes. You could have had a manageable length movie if he was just wherever he was going by now. Real 80s effects are weird. Or stunts. They're great. Like this is really a guy clinging to a plane flying over the water without blue screen, but just no way to film it as a thrill. Oh man, I'm exhausted. <laughs> this ridiculous looking puppet. <sighs> this might have been the sequence I was embarrassed by even as a kid. I don't know. I don't know if I would have been laughing at this. I'm just curious to what my parents thought watching this film. Here comes a long stretch of silence as I watch Tim Robbins waterboard himself. I can't imagine any of this makes you want to watch the movie that I was starting this with the concept of being a great film. And I do like it. I just don't like talking during it. I've really got an eye on the clock here. Again, not Dianetics, Dynatechnics. Again, this plot is half of the movie, I guess. And I really wish it wasn't. <laughs> I wish the movie... It could have been such a smaller budget film if it was just about the music scene. What a great musical. A little rock musical this could have been. No stunts, just the Howard puppet and more clothes. More fashions, please. More gem in the holograms, please. But no... So what are you doing with your day? What are your plans? Me, I have to work, like I said. So I got up early and I found myself recording my own voice while watching Howard the Duck with headphones on a very small screen. Here, I might as well tell you how I do this. I use a Mac, a Mac computer. I record with GarageBand, so I've got my mic, my uh, Audio-Technica mic going into the computer, recording myself in real time, and then I've got the DVD playing in a small window, volume low. Maybe I should do captioning next time. And I keep track of the minutes and seconds of the of the film itself. So if I need to stop, let's say I gave up but needed to finish this later, I could always coordinate it with the minutes and seconds and just edit together one long, syncable conversation. <sighs> Maybe I could play audio commentary to something else during this commentary. Uh, so Bob and I were going to talk about Perfect Strangers, the TV show. That was the plan, uh, but it fell apart last minute. That's what's hard. We're on two different coasts. I've said that before. I'm on the East Coast. He's on the West Coast. And so our recording schedules are based on, one, each other's availabilities, but two, those availabilities with the time difference. With three hours difference. I mean, he doesn't get home from work till seven, which means 10 o'clock my time, which means we start recording at 10. So finding that time to record and then having to edit it has been hard the last couple of weeks. We used to have a pretty good schedule of recording. It used to be Tuesdays nights, editing Wednesday to put up on Thursday. And for a while, it was Thursday nights, editing and putting up the next week. We've just missed a couple rhythms these past week. Things have been a little out of sync. We'll get back to it, just as we get back to this film, Howard the Duck. 
Why weren't there toys? I would have loved toys. I used to fantasize toy lines as a kid. I'd write on a piece of paper what they were, what accessories they'd come. I'd, I'd write what I thought was the ad copy. I, I loved packaging as a child. I'd, and I, I remember making up a line of toys for this. Of maybe four figures and a couple of figures and vehicles. This thing that this thing that Tim Robbins is trying to get out of a closet right now, this laser gun on a four-wheel chair that you can drive around, I thought would have been a cool toy. I remember thinking Howard the Duck's Quack-Foo, which I think they call that in the movie. I remember enjoying that. But yeah, not a lot of, uh, for an era, the 80s, that was all about toys. Not a lot of no toy connections this i mean in in an era where the flintstone movie shortly after this had a toy line robin hood prince of thieves had a toy line dune with its non-child audience base had a toy line how is there no howard one you probably would have had a few more followers and made some of your money back universal uh i wonder if that narrator does other computer voices or this was her one big break. So do you do tasks while you listen to this? If you're not syncing it up, do you do you do stuff around the house? Maybe you don't listen to it at this point. Maybe you skip ahead. Maybe this just lost the subscribers. God, am I losing our audience today? Like permanently? I know I've lost you because I've gone off track with this movie. This won't be the show every week, folks. Apparently I had this need to get something up, but instead of recording like a 20-minute short episode, miniaturized, miniaturized episode, I thought I'd pick the longest audio commentary I've done yet with this two-hour. I really thought this movie would have been done by now. I thought it was an hour and a half, and we're coming up on the hour and a half mark now. We're at one hour, 29 minutes, and 39 seconds. And unless it's 10 minutes of credits... There's still a lot to go. I might cut out early, not from the movie, but from the credits, if you're waiting to the end to sync me up with the final shots. I wonder if this movie would have had a sequel. I think I was all for it. I thought that you could have had a Return to Duck World sequel where Howard makes it back to his planet. So that design is okay. They're slowly turning Jeffrey Jones into a special effect monster. He already is a social one. I wonder if that's... I don't know the character of Thog, the Netherspawn over Master Asominus from the comic very well, so I do wonder if this makeup is based on his look, if the writers were aware of it, or if that's an afterthought. Because again, I don't know if the writers knew the comic. You could tell someone, here's some character names. Howard's from Duck World. Here's a famous tagline from a, that's in a Pretender song. The Trapped in a World that He Never Made. And you could probably write this, and this is the movie you'd write. Because you're not tackling anything. If Howard the Duck came out now, maybe it'd be like a Deadpool. Like maybe it would be a comedy of the genre. Maybe that's why this didn't work. The comic was was parodying the medium while also taking on social issues. Uh, uh, that's a lovely line. Um, you know, a big budget movie was not the place, unless you were Reds, to make a social comment in uh, in the 80s. So you didn't have that. But you also didn't have other superhero movies to mock. You didn't have something for the audience to take on. You know, the Ninja Turtles, as an example. If you watch the newest, 
If you've watched the newest cartoon, I know this is a 21st century reference, but the CGI Turtles, it's an action show. It's an anime-like show, but it also is constantly making fun of and doing parodies and satires of pre-existing sci-fi uh, uh, properties. You know, they do, they, they'll do an Aliens parody. They'll do a Fury Road parody. They'll, they'll do whatever it is. And so it exists as something for kids to enjoy, this cartoon, but also as a way of commenting on what came before. It even comments on previous iterations of the Turtles because they've been around for 33 years now. So you have a lot of history to sort of make fun of or reference that's what these characters are for that's obviously what the comic did and maybe if you make this movie down that's make this movie now excuse me that's the movie you make it's like deadpool this would be a deadpool like movie maybe your character would break the fourth wall maybe not but you'd be parodying and commenting on the medium and i think you need that medium to exist for that to happen howard couldn't do that in the 80s just like deadpool came at the right time the Deadpool movie came out, what, last year? Comic movies had been around long enough to build up sort of a ground of what that could be. Because when they tried to use the character before, in 2009, he was just a wisecracking Ryan Reynolds without the baggage of mocking the genre. So maybe some things don't translate well. I mean, this is a fun kids movie, but I would imagine if I had grown up reading Howard instead of working in reverse if I had been a fan first this movie would have been a letdown similar to Tank Girl now I love the Tank Girl movie I should have done that probably talked through that that's based on an underground comic with a very specific following and the, and the movie was very different from that comic but the movie got me to see the comic brought me into its world and, and you know they exist as two different things but they can they can do that because it's your entry level in i mean think of the marvel superheroes think of the dark versions of them the darkest wolverine movies and stories you can think of but also think of the cartoony wolverine that shows up on kids show these characters do have a span it's interesting that you can or batman would have been the better example because batman works in any genre the 60s pop show the hokey Super Friends show, the live-action Tim Burton cartoon, the very dark, uh, The Dark Knight with Heath Ledger. All these different versions of him work because it's a flexible character. Howard may not be a flexible character. There may not actually be a children's movie in Howard the Duck. There may not be a mass-market appeal to Howard the Duck. That might just not be the nature of that character because it's a very particular attack on the medium so what we're getting is people who like puns writing a sci-fi movie based on name only like I don't maybe because it's a duck but if you had picked a different animal, humanoid animal, anthropomorphous, anthropomorphous, anthropomorphized, anamorphs. What is the word I'm looking for? Anthropomorphized character, animal. If you picked a different one, like a cat or, or, or a bear or something and made that movie, you wouldn't have to call it Howard the Duck and you wouldn't have to pay the rights. And it would be this movie with something else. You probably also wouldn't make it because in the end, what probably got this made 
was George Lucas's recognition of of the comic as a character. Speaking of George Lucas, here comes the Rancor's friend. I like this effect. This is the weird sci-fi stop-motion monster effect that again is out of the blue. It's um, a weird bit of faulty storytelling. The Dark Overlords, when they arrive, need a human body to exist in on our planet. But now they don't because this is what apparently they look like. A tentacle horror, sort of like a half lobster, half sarlacc, half rancor. That's three halves, two of which are Star Wars references. Again, it's a cool effect, but it's kind of like really, this is now just we need a spectacle. It's a cool sound. I like how it walks. I mean, this is fun. It's very Ray Harryhausen-ish. Top of the line effects for its times. But again, what were my parents thinking at this point? Where did this creature come from? What does my little sister think of watching this? It's pretty good blue screening, composite filming. This movie's got a budget. It shows. It's got a budget that it may not have deserved. I mean, I don't know how you make this. I mean, you cut out the sci-fi aspects to make this movie at a lesser budget, and you put all your money into the believable duck puppet because that has to be real for this to work. But so much, I don't think these actors, they already have to commit to a puppet. Why put them up against this much blue screen as well? Acting is hard. I don't think... I don't think I always give enough credit to how difficult it is to act with something not there. Ah, computers of the 80s. You were so much easier to operate. So 13 minutes left. If you remember last week's LA story at 13 minutes, we were going into the final phase of the argument between Steve Martin's character and Victoria Tennant's character. I remember thinking like, wow, this movie wraps up quick. I can't believe the whole story's done in, in 13 minutes here. I'm just wondering how is there still 12 minutes to go? So earlier, the Dark Overlord killed that cop, disintegrated him. He just shot Beverly and Filzy, the Tim Robbins character, and they're slowly dissipating. It was to set up that aspect of his power, but it certainly doesn't work at the same speed. Like they're gonna slowly disappear and that way they don't die. Blah, I may have fallen asleep there for a moment. Some gross body horror stuff in this. Some slightly David Cronenberg light. I'm not just sitting here watching. I'm just trying to think of anything to say at this point. Because we're watching, yeah, an anima radio-controlled car piloted by an animatronic duck combat a later-to-be-composited stop-motion model. It should be a good reel, right? should be a good effects reel. But does anybody remember this creature? I mean, I do. It's horrifying with his bulbous eyes and all his tentacles, but... Does this show up in ILM books, Industrial Light and Magic? Do they ever use this in a retrospective? Like, remember this creature, this monster? I'm going to guess no. Which is too bad. I mean, again, it does, I think even as a child, even as a 10-year-old, I think I felt like, oh, there's, there's a prototype that didn't make it into Return of the Jedi, which might not be true, but it definitely has that look of something they could have used. 
Uh, Ghostbusters like, right? With the beam. And so there's the other death of the movie. He decimated the Dark Overlord. I guess we have two or three more deaths coming up, actually. Not Leah Thompson, not Tim Robbins' hairdo. They survived. All right, 10 minutes, 43 seconds. Maybe I could just find the soundtrack and play that for you. So the idea is that there's this gateway, light, lights and beams shooting into the sky are a comic book staple. There's your blue light shooting into the infinite of space, meaning something's arriving. That happens a lot. Maybe it happened first here in Howard the Duck. As a child, I thought this was a powerful sacrifice. Howard destroys his one-way ticket home while strings sort of swell in the background with that weird church-sounding love theme to Howard the Duck that just didn't catch on. Here comes some more special effects. He's going to use his beam. So there's, what, three Dark Overlords coming through the gate. He shoots the beam. That's going to dissipate three. So there's a total death count in this movie of five. One Earthling and four Dark Overlords. I think that was three screeching as they dissipate through space. That's a low body count. That's how you get your PG and not your PG-13 rating. And you don't, by the way, get a PG-13 rating for showing a duck condom, duck titties, or a feather erection. Featherection. See, I know the movie's almost over. I know that this scene cuts right to the final song performance, but somehow there's nine minutes remaining. I guess five of those minutes are the song? Or four of those minutes? And then there's five minutes of credits? Ah. Uh. So that's nostalgia. I mean, I think there are some things that we can talk about that we love that we can talk about. Some things that we just enjoy, like I've said before. If I can name drop Star Wars characters while it's playing, I will. And I can talk about its impact and, and, and with passion. And then there's other pieces of pop culture whose impact was huge, but whose presence was maybe smaller than we thought. Like, I guess I can't... I spent more of this commentary talking about Gem and the Holograms than I did Howard the Duck. So maybe this movie, impact as it had, recognizable as it is, maybe it doesn't have the staying conversational impact of these other things. Like, I could talk about this for maybe 20 minutes, but I can't talk about it for its length because its impact was a different impact. This was a gateway to other things. Sometimes the pop culture we talk about is that item, and sometimes it's the band that introduced us to the band that got us this album, or it's the actor that was in a movie with this other actor, so the next time that actor showed up, we then saw that. Like it's, This was a gateway drug to comic books and to f live action fashion. I do love this song. This Howard the Duck theme where Leah Thompson sings and sells it. And this might be the most memorable scene for me that I watched the most. I loved this as a kid. I mean, they look like Prince's Revolution, basically. They look like, uh, God, are the two ladies' names in the Revolution? I'm blanking, but someone listening might be saying it. And if I heard it, I'd then repeat it. Um, that's kind of what they look I mean, they look like the fucking holograms. There's a keytar. There's weird hexagonal drums. 
very 80s appearance. I mean, you have your Aja, your Shayna, um, your drummer whose name I'm forgetting was Shayna, and then they switched. Anyways, yeah, Howard the Duck looks is what I think of when I think of what the 80s look like. But I guess that alone doesn't impact me. Though I enjoy it, but I don't, I don't know how much I can learn from it. So I apologize to those of you who had to make it through the rougher spots of this, specifically the next six minutes and 31 seconds remaining of this music act. I probably won't talk through the credits on this one, but I'll get us there. Because we're going to see some pretty fancy footwork. I got to say, watch watch Leah Thompson. She's Why she wasn't in a band after this, she gives it, she just, she really gives it to that duck. She looks very impressed. There's Madonna. Not Madonna, but Madonna's clothes. There's some synchronized footwork. This ending should be engaging. I think I liked it as a kid. Because it's a duck on guitar. Okay. Let's stick it out, folks. This song's got to almost be over. Right? Oh, man. Do you have thoughts on Howard the Duck? Ideas? Things you would say? I'll listen to them. You know what? Tell you what. Email them in to me. Record them. And I'll tack them on the end of this episode. Because the credits are rolling over the movie. They know you want to get out of there. So, wow. Nice split, Leah Thompson. Holy shit. See? I'd watch a movie about this band. I'd want to see more of them. And, you know, as much, if not a little less... Of the duck, duck designed by Nikki Ruddis Chimero. So she designed this fella. What do you think this audience thought? They were told to really cheer for that duck suit. What movie is this? They might be wondering. I don't think this song made it to the radio, but I loved it anyways. I probably cassette taped it off a VHS copy of this. I used to rent this movie a lot. I do know that. There's that love theme. And here's your final shot of the movie because we didn't get opening credits. That's why they scrolled those. And they end right before a kiss. So there's the movie for you. Uh, are you going to stick around for the credits? I, uh, I'm probably not. It's a very Indiana Jones sounding theme. It's not Indiana Jones, but it has such a dramatic swell like that would have worked and I guess it kind of does but that would work in a movie that that this movie was for a bit the first half the sci-fi elements kind of just smother what was actually you know I was talking before about how Howard is a comment is a social commentator as a comic book character it's there to satirize and mock and point out holes and they were doing that there's actually a solid 20 minutes of that. I wish they had stretched that out more. Because as a kid, I, I would have been, I still would have been engrossed. I mean, I liked the recognizable sci-fi aspects. That's why that thing looks like the Rancor. That's why there's all those lights like Ghostbusters. It's familiar. And it's what they thought the audience needed to get through. Oh, Steve Gerber was a consultant to the producers, according to these credits anyways. Phil Tippett? 
I think I forgot that Phil Tippett designed <laughs> the Dark Overlord. That's a big deal. He designed the Rancor. That makes sense. So maybe I knew that. Some big names working on this. I don't know. I Two movies are happening here. And I had a lot to say at the first half. And I think that's indicative of a lot of pop culture of the 80s. Is I don't think I always made it through. <laughs> you know, I don't think I finished every comic book I picked up. I think I rarely flipped albums to side two. Or, or just make mixtapes and, and, and pick and choose. And this movie, I remember the end. I remember enjoying the end in the theater. But it's... It's the first half that impacted me. All the stuff I was saying at the beginning. Want me to say it again to get through the end of this movie? No. I don't need to do that. It's Thomas Dolby, who I've been compared to visually, that I've been told I look a bit like Thomas Dolby at times. Didn't work on a movie like him. Didn't write this song. He wrote a lot of songs for this movie. Again, it's a great album. It's a great pop new wave encapsulation for someone at least who grew up in a small town i don't know what it meant to people who maybe were in the scene to see it on the big screen like do we ever want to see our scene represented or do we seek out other scenes that seem appealing and then want to be part of those scenes that's what i did that was my draw tommy swordlow that seems like a familiar name who is that he's reading the credits here now is any of the names that look familiar? I mean, there were at the top. I'm just saying these. Thomas Dolby is in, is in it. He's a bartender. Nancy Fish, is that a name I should know? No. Oh, there's a stunt duck. And then Richard Kiley, is that someone people know? That was the narrator at the beginning. They called the voice of the cosmos, but I think it was just the narrator. So let's see. One, two, three, two, Four, so like four or five songs, four songs performed by Leah Thompson. That's pretty nice. And a couple of other loose songs in here. 80 soundtracks for the best. Thanks, MCA. I think the, all of Universal soundtracks were released in MCA. Look, under a minute to go. Thanks for sitting through. Do I go back and re record this? No. Do I release it? Well, yes. Do you listen to it? thank you if you did and, and if you heard that you did um, and if you didn't I understand on this one it was a lot and if I made you buy the DVD to sync it up you can probably resell it on eBay for $4 to someone who's looking to get some collectible Blu-ray based uh, coasters Lucasfilm you did it you did this and a few other things. LTD Limited? So that was potentially garbage. I mean, you know, thanks for listening, but also sorry. Um, but it's an episode. It's a weekly show. That's how we do it. Uh, next week, I know I've been saying this now since the last week, but next week, Bob should be back. So hopefully you'll be back too. We'll have an actual show talking and interacting. Maybe you enjoyed this one, but it was a lot to get through. Um, 20th Century Popcast. You can always check us out online at 20popcast.com. If you go there, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, and other Android devices. You can follow me at Subcultist on Twitter. You can follow and request that Bob returns. Yeah, get on the Twitter. Go to at RH Canning and plead with him to get back on the show. 
tell him that uh, he needs to get back back out for next week because you don't want to sit through a two-hour audio commentary for Ice Pirates. But again, check us out at, out at uh, 20popcast.com. Blah, blah, blah. This and that. See you next week. Catchphrase. <laughs>